If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, or your scripture journals, I want to invite you to open with me to Luke and chapter 6. Luke and chapter 6, as we continue our uh, series through this uh, incredible gospel. We're going to be in 12 through 19 in our time together this morning. It'll also be behind me on the screen in my translation as well. And so if you got it, say I got it. All right. Let's, uh, let's read this together. Luke 6, starting verse 12. In these days, he, Jesus, went out to the mountain to pray. All night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem, seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. Amen. This is God's word. May God write its eternal truths on all of our hearts. Do you like the fair? How many of you guys like going to the fair? Two of you? <laughs> Whether local or the state fair, people love, right, going to these kinds of things, don't they? I bet you guys love it. I remember when we first moved to Georgia, it was the end of summer, and folks said we should check out the state fair, right, uh, that fall. So we did, and although it was September, it very... It was very much like the surface of the sun. It was so hot. <laughs> it was so hot. And I'm pretty sure we drank two dozen lemonades, which cost $70 each, right, uh, between all of us. But I did get to eat one of those giant turkey legs like a Viking. And so that was a win. But in any case, we, we love the fair. It's a big draw. And we, we, we'll see more and more fairs and festivals, things like this. Uh, pop up as the weather continues to get warmer, right? Um, we'll spend time and money to go and enjoy these fairs because they're fun. In John Bunyan's The Pilgrim's Progress, the main character, Christian, is an allegorical representation of every Christian as they sojourn throughout this foreign land we call the world, on their way to heaven, which Bunyan calls the celestial city. Well, as Christian is traveling to the celestial city, he encounters many characters and troubles and hardships in towns. One place he comes across is a fair. And would you know what it is called? It's called Vanity Fair. I want you to listen to how Dunyan describes it. This fair is held all year long. It's not a newly erected business, but it's actually an ancient enterprise. At this fair, they sell such merchandise as houses, land, Trades, places, honors, promotions, titles, countries, kingdoms, lusts, and pleasures of all sorts, including things such as wives, husbands, children, masters, servants, lives, blood, bodies, souls, silver, gold, pearls, precious stones, and much more. 
And along with this, at this fair, there is constant round-the-clock entertainment. All things like juggling and cheats and games and plays and clowns and mimics, tricksters and rogues, and other amusements of every kind. What was Bunyan trying to tell us there? He was not trying to tell us that in this life we will occasionally pass through places of great temptation like the Vanity Fair. Places specifically marked out that we need to avoid. No, he was trying to vividly show us the truth that life is a passing through Vanity Fair. That Vanity Fair isn't an occasional place we might happen upon, but that our whole lives are lived in Vanity Fair. Well, how did Christian and his companion, whose name was Faithful, how, how did they do when they walked through Vanity Fair? How were they received? This is what Bunyan says. He said, when the pilgrims arrived, they were clothed with garments different from any available at the fair. When the people saw them, they stared at them and talked about what manner of people this might be. Some said they were fools. Others said they were lunatics. And some said they were strange and unusual. One mocking merchant observed the strange behavior of faithful and Christian and said to them, what will you buy? The pilgrims looked at him with serious expression and said, we buy the truth. That answer, as you can imagine, was not well received. But Bunyan hits on another crucial point. Christians travel through this vanity fair of a world, but they're different and distinct because they are citizens and representatives of an otherworldly kingdom. They buy truth. So they stick out. They're different. They seem strange to those who happily buy Vanity Fair's allures and pleasures and sparkling wares. This section we begin this morning that takes up the rest of chapter 6 is a section all about the kingdom of Christ. And it's designed to teach us how to live as sojourners of a different kingdom in this vanity fair of a world. How to not only stick out, but to keep ourselves unstained as we call others out of darkness and into his marvelous light. This chapter helps to answer the question, what is a kingdom person like? What makes them different? How are they to be identified? What do they do to represent their glorious king? And I want to highlight three of those characteristics of a kingdom person in our time together this morning. And we'll see many more of these kingdom characteristics as we go through chapter 6 in the coming weeks, okay? So three points, starting with point number one. Kingdom people depend on the king. Simple enough, right? Kingdom people depend on the king. We must first recall what came directly before this section. If you have your copy of God's Word, just look up at 11 and before. Particularly what we talked about last week, which was Jesus facing opposition from religious leaders. This did not deter Jesus. It did not discourage him. It did not take him off of his mission. Instead, what do we see in verse 12? He responded by going to a secluded place. Yes, a secluded place. So that he could do what? For how long? All night. He went to go pray all night. And Luke is intentional to show us throughout his gospel, Jesus modeling for us the necessity of prayer and solitude to commune with God. Before Jesus even makes a decision on who would be his apostles, he goes and prays for hours and hours on this mountain. 
Jesus is not only modeling the importance of prayer for us so that we will pray too, but Jesus as fully human prays in order to fully align his will with the Father as he prays in the Spirit. As Christians, we have the same privilege, don't we? We have the indwelling Spirit because of Christ's life, death, resurrection, and ascension, and we have access to the Father so that we could call him Father too, yes? Jesus prays here, all night, which is like Luke is subtly showing us that he puts, Jesus puts the need of the kingdom before his own, even if it means sleepless nights. And, and I don't know about you, but this thought kind of rattles me a little bit because I struggle at times to carve out intentional, quiet moments alone just to pray, just to focus with God on God with no other distractions. Do you struggle with, with that too? So many other things demand our attention. And like we talked about last week, we book our lives so that they're full. And maybe we're too busy to pray, to carve out a time to pray. Maybe we're, we're too busy to carve out intentional times to commune with our Creator, which sounds ridiculous when we say it. Then we're too busy and something needs to be cut out in order to attend our souls in fellowship with the Father. And on top of my struggle to carve out time to focus solely on prayer, I have what I call adult onset ADD when I pray. You know what I'm talking about? I'm like the golden retriever from Up. Doug. You know what I'm saying? I, I could be praying and then some other squirrel, right, will show up and I'll chase it. <laughs> and I'll chase it for a little while until I see another squirrel. And then I'll chase that squirrel. And before long, I'm so off the path. Does this ever happen to you? So off the path that I don't even know where I left off. Or I just fall asleep, right? But then you have Jesus. <laughs> you have Jesus here just spending hours and hours and hours communing with God. There's a dependence on God that Jesus models for us in his consistent desire to get alone and pray. It is a fellowship with God and a desire to ensure his will is aligned with the Father and the Spirit to carry out the mission of the kingdom. And again, it's sometimes, this one especially comes on the heels of intense opposition, doesn't it? From religious leaders he doesn't give up, though. He goes and leans back, right, on dependence on God. Even though Jesus is fully God, he still relies on God because he's also fully human, meaning he can sympathize truly with our weakness, yet without sin. And so the question that confronts us straight away is this. If Jesus believed it was necessary for him to pray, how much more necessary is it for us to pray? And what prayer does is it gives us time of, to fellowship intimately with God, right? It shows a childlike dependence on Him, and it is a pursuit of His will so that we could conform our lives to His will. Prayer is not us trying to bend God's will to ours. It's so that we can bend our will to His, so that His will can permeate every aspect of our existence. In fact, you look again at this phrase that Luke uses that's translated prayer to God. You see it? That means that not only is the prayer directed to God, but prayer is conformity with the very nature and will of God. So if prayer is the primary way in which we show that we depend on God, then to not pray does what? It shows a lack of dependence on God doesn't it? It assumes an arrogant posture of independent self-sufficiency. We must not 
relegate prayer to only the times in our lives that we are most desperate. Of course we should pray, yes, during the times in life when it's especially difficult and confusing, but if we only pray at those times, we're assuming the posture that we have a pretty good control of our life most of the time, right? And we'll come to God when we need Him. And that's, that's the, to, to treat God like a cosmic genie in a bottle, not a loving Father in whom we delight and desire to please. Jerry Bridges says it like this. He says, how can we grow in conscious sense of dependence on Christ? Through the discipline of prayer. He says, prayer is the tangible expression of our dependence. We may assent to the fact that we are dependent on Christ, but if our prayer life is meager or perfunctory, we thereby deny it. For whatever else we say about prayer, it is a recognition of our own helplessness and absolute dependence on God. It is this admission of helplessness and dependence that's so repugnant to our sinful spirit of self-sufficiency. He says, if we want to become holy, we must pursue not a spirit of independence, but a spirit of dependence. And one of the best means God has given us for doing this is discipline of prayer. If you're a Christian, this means you are a kingdom person, right? You are a citizen of the kingdom of Christ, first and foremost. And the fact that you are a kingdom person in the first place means that we have, at some point, right, admitted our inability. Isn't that true? In all facets of life, you must have admitted that you cannot be independent. You must have admitted that your independence has only brought sin and pain, not the supposed freedom and vivacious life that the world promises. You must have admitted that you need God for salvation, for life, for meaning, for direction, and for the power to kill sin, love others, and pursue obedience. You must have thrown your hands up and said, I can't do it. I need you. I can't save myself. I can't do anything apart from you. You are what I need, and you're all that I need. That's what it means to convert, to give your life to the kingdom of Christ. And what prayer thus does is not only aligns our will with God's, it is a humble posture of reliance on him for living life traversing through Vanity Fair. And because of Christ, we have a privilege of being able to go to God at all times. Does that blow your mind? That by itself, you go to God at all times because of Christ and the indwelling spirit with our petition, with our pains, with our struggles, with our desperate cries of needs for his power and beauty to sustain us. Is it not the highest privilege that we get to stroll into the throne room of God at any time and commune with our creator? One of my favorite Tim Keller quotes hits, this, hits on this. He said, the only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. We have that kind of access. And as children, we can be open and honest. We can share our struggles. We can plead on behalf of our loved ones and churches. We can, like Jesus, ask God for guidance on decisions that needs to be made that, that we aren't basing our, so that we aren't basing our decisions solely on our fickle feelings or dumb, dumb hearts or our desire for ease and comfort. We could declare our need to God and our inability to do anything apart from him at all. And even our groans and our sighs are received by him like a loving father who scoops up their injured child. So we should view prayer as a privilege, shouldn't we? 
honor, as a declaring of our need of him to empower us as we traverse a dark world. And we should therefore make it a non-negotiable part of our daily routines. Yes, we should pray without ceasing, but we should also get alone with God where he is our sole focus. Jesus needed to pray, so how much more do we need to pray as kingdom people? I think it's something else Tim Keller said. Tim Keller wrote a book, if you're, if you're interested, you're like, Vaughn, I struggle with prayer. How do I get started on prayer? Tim, this is a good book Tim Keller wrote. Uh, it's easy to remember. It's on prayer. It's called Prayer. Okay? When he and his wife Kathy were going through an especially difficult time in their lives, uh, Kathy said she wanted them to pray together every night for the rest of their lives. Let's pray together every night for the rest of our lives. And she used this illustration with him because he was reluctant <laughs> to make a point. She said this, Imagine you were diagnosed with a, such a lethal condition that the doctor told you that you would die within hours unless you took a particular medicine. A pill every night before going to sleep. Imagine that you were told that you could never miss it or you would die. Would you forget? Would you forget to take that pill? Would you not get around to it some nights? <laughs> no, it would be so crucial that you wouldn't forget. You would never miss. We have to pray, she said, we can't let it slip our minds. That's how we should think of prayer, as something we need, something we prioritize, something we can't do without, because it is an act of dependence on God, and we can't do, do without depending on Him. Further, times of prayer means more time to commune with Jesus. What's better than that? Not because we want something, but because we want to be close to Him because he's glorious and beautiful to us, because simply being in his presence is enough to sustain all of life. And this leads us directly to our point number two. Let's call point number two, kingdom people want the king. Kingdom people want the king. Luke tells us that after Jesus prayed all night, came down from the mountain, he selected 12 disciples, he named what? Apostles from among a large group, a larger group, right, of disciples. Simon, Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who would become a traitor. These are the 12 that Jesus chose, who accepted that call to follow him, and they gave up everything, didn't they? They gave everything to follow him. This wasn't a part-time vocation for them. <laughs> Nor was it even for only three years. This was a lifetime commitment. Their lives, do you think it's fair to say, would never be the same. Never be the same. They gave up everything to be near him. They slept near him. They ate with him. They prayed with him. They laughed with him. They cried with him. They attached their lives to Jesus, and they lived the rest of their lives poured out for him. They were marked by proximity to him with a heart set on him for his glory forevermore. Now, there's another group I want you to notice. Look at verse 17. We're told there that there is a crowd. See that? Then in verse 19, we see again this crowd. And we know from our time in Luke so far that Jesus' popularity had grown, right? It had grown. People came from everywhere to try to get a healing or to be cured. In fact, Luke even lists regions in verse 17, right? Judea and Jerusalem, Tyre and Sidon, which are Gentile areas, all came to get something from Jesus. So there's two groups, right? Those who want Jesus for Jesus, who gave up all to follow him, 
who will be near to him. Then you have the second group, and they heard about Jesus. They heard they could get a benefit from him. So they came to receive something. One sees Jesus as the prize. The other sees what he can provide for them as the prize. Do you see the difference? One is willing to give up all if it means being near Jesus. The other will get what they can and withdraw. One wants to give of themselves because they think Jesus is worth the cost. The other wants to only get something from Jesus. Do you see the difference between these two groups? Because here's the thing. You ready? Those two groups still exist, don't they? There are those who want Jesus for his stuff. They, they want what he can provide, whether that be health or wealth or accomplishing one's personal dreams with him as cheerleader or unleashing one's inner potential or even simply wanting heaven when they die. But they don't really want to follow him. They want, they, they, they don't want him for his person. They want his stuff. They, they don't see him as beautiful. They see him as useful. Kyle Eidelman says this, the biggest threat to the church today is fans who call themselves Christians but aren't actually interested in following Christ. They want to be close enough to Jesus to get all the benefits, but not close, not so close that it requires anything from them. Similarly, Dean and Sarah in his book, Getting Over Yourself, says this, in new prosperity churches, Christian terminology is often repackaged in a way that redirects congregants towards their own stories and away from self-denial, picking up the cross, and living to magnify Jesus above all. This is the Disneyfication of the Bible. When you believe in Jesus, he makes all your dreams come true. Yes, Jesus saves you from your sin, but he's also like the genie from Aladdin. There's a world of difference, yes, between wanting Jesus for Jesus and wanting Jesus for his benefits. Is there a big difference between those two? Are there benefits to having Jesus? Absolutely there are. Eternal benefits, unfathomable riches, unsearchable treasure. But the difference between being in the crowd and being among the called is do you want Jesus for his person? Or do you just want to be close enough to get something from him? Is he a means to some other end? Or is he himself the end? That's the biggest question we all have to answer. It's like, the difference between the prodigal son, you know the parable of the prodigal son? Remember how he was at the beginning of the story and the way he was at the end of the story? There's a difference here. Those who are in the crowd, those who only want Jesus for his benefits, are like when the son went up to the father and said, give me my inheritance now, give me your stuff, but I don't want you. Then they live as if they have no father. They live away from him, blowing their inheritance on things for them. Those who are followers are like when the son came to his senses and went to his father with nothing in his hand and he just wanted to be with him. Even if it meant being a servant. You see the difference? The crowd wants to receive, the followers want to give themselves because they know they have already received the truest prize of all prizes. Who is it? And they see that they receive Jesus through no merit of their own, which makes them want to live for him. They, they know he is the treasure in himself. Everything else that comes with him is just icing on the cake. This text shows us that even proximity to Jesus, this might be the most frightening thing about this text, 
even proximity to Jesus, even identifying with Jesus doesn't mean that one has a heart for Jesus. Do you see it? Who's the last name listed among the apostles? Judas. Who Luke tells us what he'd do. <coughs> Traitor. This isn't an accident. This isn't a mistake by Jesus to have Judas as one of his twelve. He chose him knowing full well what he was going to do. How he was going to sell Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. How he was going to cave under the pressure of the religious leaders and how he loved things of earth more than Jesus. But Jesus called him anyway, didn't he? God was going to use even the evil betrayal of Judas for his own ends. But this shows us, as Daryl Bach notes, not everyone remains a team player and defection can come from the innermost ranks Close association with Jesus does not necessarily reveal the real condition of the heart. Unfaithfulness and denial eventually show themselves, but for a significant period of time, it's hard to tell where Judas really was. Judas may have had some time of proximity with Jesus, but he never truly loved him. Isn't there a huge difference here? And when the choice was presented to him to be loyal to Jesus or gain worldly treasure... What did he pick? He chose the latter. He, in the words of every Disney princess movie ever, followed his heart. And where was his heart? Not with Jesus. He's like both the seed that fell among the rocks and the seed that fell among the thorns in the parable of the sower. He followed for a little while. He heard the word of Jesus, but the allures of the world choked out the seed and there was never any root. And in our climate, friends, of cultural Christianity, there are many people in this community, in this county, in this state, in the South, in this country, who say they know Jesus. Say they made a decision for him and may have been very zealous at one time and are even sitting in churches this very day, but Jesus has no effect on their life. Whether they knew him or not doesn't change anything. They are fans of his. They are in the crowd spectating Jesus, but he is not the motivation of their heart. He's not the prize in himself. He's not the king and lord of their life. He's simply a means by which they could gain some other end, not the end himself. Not only is that tragic, it's damning. Following Jesus means both that he has your heart He is your true prize, and that this following is lifelong. It's it's a long obedience in the same direction. Not not zeal for a season, only to fall back into the comfort and lure of the world. Knowing Jesus must mean that he alters and upends your life. Do you know that? It must mean that. It, It means everything from the way you treat people, to how you talk about people, to the way you work. It's how you spend your time, how you lead your family, how you spend your money. All of it is seen through the lens of Christ. That's exactly what we talked about with prayer a moment ago, wasn't it? That we pray in order that we could see how Jesus can inform all of life. In other words, we pray for God's will in our lives. Being a follower means you don't want Jesus as a part-time consultant. It means you want Jesus to be a full-time determinator of how you live all of life. Following him means striving to obey his commands, and that 
of his chosen representatives who wrote the New Testament under the direction of the Holy Spirit. Does that mean, does that mean we'll obey perfectly, you guys? And never mess up? No, it doesn't mean that at all. That's not even the goal. The question is, am I striving to obey Christ, motivated solely by my love and adoration of him, which turns my striving into delight? Do you see? I want you to contrast Judas. Think of Judas with church father John Chrysostom. Has anybody heard of John Chrysostom before? Chrysostom was the archbishop of Constantinople in the 4th century. And he was brought before the empress because of his faith in preaching. And she threatened him several times. First she said, I will banish you. You know what he told her? You can't banish me. For this world is my father's house. But I will kill you, she said. No, you cannot. For my life is hidden with Christ and God. Then I will take away your treasure, she said. No, you cannot, for my treasure is in heaven and my heart is there. But I will drive you away from your friends and you will have no one left, she said. No, you cannot, for I have a friend in heaven from whom you cannot separate me. I defy you, for there is nothing you can do to harm me. Chrysostom, unlike Judas, followed Jesus to the end, even if it meant he was killed. He had no fear of people. No fear of loss of material possession or life because he identified life by a person. As long as he had Jesus, he had life. He's like, you're going to kill me? No, he said, you're going to kill me. What's that mean? You send me to be with Jesus? That's what that means? So do it. Take away my treasure? You can't. My treasure is Jesus. Take away my friends? Jesus is my friend. You can't take him from me. Come what may, Chrysostom said, I have Jesus and he has me. You know that every other apostle listed here followed Jesus to the end. Did you know that? Everyone died because of the gospel, except for John, son of Zebedee, and that's because they tried to boil him alive and he wouldn't die, so they sent him to exile to Patmos. Every one of them said, Jesus is my everything, and he is the true prize of salvation, and as long as I have him, I lack nothing. Because you can't truly behold him and make any other choice. I wonder, friend, is that how you look at Jesus? Can I ask, are you a follower of Jesus or are you in the crowd? Is he the central delight of your life or of other things captured the primary delight of your heart? Do you see that Christianity is not primarily an idea, a system, or a thing, but that it's Jesus in his person at the center, and he's the cornerstone, and he's the jewel. And is he so astoundingly beautiful to you that you say, if I have Jesus, I have everything, even if I have nothing else? Because if you're a follower, not simply a fan in the crowd, and Jesus is your everything, the allures of Vanity Fair will be less and less alluring, won't they? And the challenges of life under the sun will be lined with the glimmering hope that Christ is yours now and forever, and you can hold on to the things of earth with a loose grip, not letting them either control you or define your existence. But there's something else that aids us as kingdom people sojourning in this world. While Jesus is all we need... Yes? 
He has designed life to be lived in community. He has designed the Christian life to be one lived with other kingdom people, namely the church. So point number three, kingdom people unite on the king. Kingdom people unite on the king. I want you to look, consider this list of names again. All right? The people Jesus chose are normal fellas. Yes? They have very little in common. Jesus did not choose a homogenous group of powerful people. He chose a group of people who had only him in common. And it's a group of nobodies. The, the group is truly is just a bunch of fellas. It's just a bunch of fellas who had no fame, no standing culture, had nothing to commend themselves to Jesus. Daryl Box says this, these are everyday sorts of people showing the grassroot character of Jesus' ministry. What a contrast to the selection of leadership we tend to make in our culture where money, status, and power bring a person to leadership table. How many churches have been damaged, says Bach, because the leadership is selected from people who do not have spiritual qualifications but qualify for the Fortune 500 in terms of lifestyle values and use of power. Jesus chose people no one else would have chosen if they were starting up a new movement. These are the last guys you would pick. Who on earth would pick fishermen, a tax collector, a skeptical man, and a future trader to form the nucleus of a movement that would turn the world upside down? Who would choose this group of ragamuffins who have nothing to commend themselves to Jesus to be chosen as a representative? Is who you would have chosen? No. But Jesus sees in them people who respond to his call, are willing to give up everything for him, and rely on him for power. So all that is really required is willingness and an infatuation with Jesus and weakness. But I want you to consider two names in particular from verse 15. Okay. See how it says Matthew? And then at the end it says, Simon called the zealot. Do you see that? This is fascinating. These two guys should not be together. Matthew and Simon should not be together. They are natural enemies. You remember Matthew was called Levi in chapter 5, right? He was a tax collector. He left everything to follow Jesus, threw him a lavish party, and made the Pharisees mad. You might also remember that tax collectors, we mentioned this, were considered the bottom of the barrel, right, in terms of social standing in the first century Palestine. Everyone hated them. They were considered thieves, race traders, collaborators, extortionists, because they worked for the oppressing empire, right? They, couldn't, they weren't even allowed to go in the synagogue, like walk into it. And even though everyone in the nation hated them, no one, and I mean no one, hated them more than this group called zealots. No one hated them like the zealots did. You know what zealots were? They were revo military revolutionaries who sought to overthrow Rome through violence. And in fact, in the late 60s AD, about 30 years after this, it was these zealots who would fight against Rome and led to the destruction of the temple. So what do you have here? You have Simon, who was a member of a nationalist party who would have utterly hated Matthew because zealots hated Rome more than anyone. And so they would have seen working with Rome as the highest of all offenses, and vice versa. Matthew wouldn't want to be a fan of Simon either. And yet, what do you have? They're together, intentionally selected by Jesus to be part of this foundational group. These guys will be in close quarters together for years 
They'll eat together. They'll sleep near each other. They'll go through highs and lows of ministry together. And what do they have in common? They're natural enemies. But what do they have in common now? Just Jesus. And that's enough, isn't it? That's enough of a binding agent for them to forsake earthly boundaries and join hands for the kingdom. Because note this, friends, reconciliation is a product of Jesus' work always. From the very beginning, Jesus intended that his followers, one, identify with one another, and two, that his fellowship be made up of people who have nothing in common except for him. Don't you think Matthew and Simon being together with Jesus would have spoken profoundly to the world? Don't you? People would see them together, (laughs) and they would wonder, what in the world is going on there? How are those two together? What could possibly reconcile them? What could possibly turn these natural enemies into the best of friends who would be bound to one another and go through the highs and lows of life together? And what would the answer be? Jesus. You know as well as I do that human propensity is to gather together based on commonality. Is that true? We naturally gravitate to people who are just like who? Us, because our favorite type of person in the world happens to be ourselves. Right? Isn't that true? You love you, some you. Right? I love me, some me. Who do you talk to more than yourself? Who do you agree with more than you? And so if you're going to have friends, who better than, you know, people who are basically just like you? I don't know if you saw this, but a few years ago, there was an archaeological discovery at Pompeii that they uncovered. And they uncovered many homes and other buildings. They were preserved so well because the volcano had erupted and basically froze the town in time. It's one of the greatest archaeological sites known to man. Well, one of the discoveries was a well-preserved fresco of Narcissus. Do you know who Narcissus is? He was a hunter in Greek mythology, and he was incredibly handsome. And one day he caught his own reflection in a pool of water. And he was so enamored with himself that he couldn't look away. And he died of starvation because <laughs> he couldn't pull himself away. He loved himself so much, he couldn't take his eyes off himself. We all have a little narcissist in us, don't we? Which is why we collect for us friends who are just like us and call it community. But the thing is, gathering around commonalities of the world says nothing unique to the world, does it? The world's already doing that. Doesn't the world do that? You don't need the church to just hang out with people who you have a bunch of stuff in common with, and you don't even need Jesus to do that. The world does that just fine without knowing Jesus. Like, if the friends we collect for ourselves, I want you to ask yourself this, would hang out together even if Jesus never rose from the grave? What's unique or otherworldly about that? Tell me. See, you don't want to say it, do you? Because you do it. (laughs) right? It's more comfortable. It's easier. It's our preference. But when did Jesus ever call us to comfort, ease, and preference? What if the world looked at you, and what if the world looked at the church and saw a collection of people who had nothing in common except for Jesus? What would that say to the world? They would look, and they would ask, what could bind people like this? They'd ask, what's going on there? Why are they together? You have nothing in common. And the church would say back, we have only one thing in common that matters, and his name is 
D.A. Carson put this so good. He said, ideally, the church itself is not made up of natural friends. It's made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything of the sort. Christians come together not because they form a natural collocation, but because they have been saved by Jesus Christ and owe Him a common allegiance. In light of this common allegiance, in light of the fact that they have all been loved by Jesus Himself, they commit themselves to doing what He says. And He commands them to love one another. In this light, He says, they're a band of natural enemies who love each other for Jesus' sake. We as a church should intentionally cultivate, don't you think, diversity of all kinds, age, race, socioeconomic status, and we should desire it. We should intentionally build relationship with people who are not like us, people who we wouldn't hang out with, quite frankly, <laughs> if Jesus hadn't risen from the grave and kicked over the wall of worldly division. Don't you think? And we should always, always, always prioritize Christ because the flimsy things of earth that we tend to build relationships on will, own, will cause us to want to divide from one another over things that don't matter. But if we continue to remember our bonds are built on Jesus, tell me, what could divide us? Everything that could come up potentially divide us, we would say, we're not letting this happen. We have Jesus in common, and that's enough for me to stay, love, give, serve, and sacrifice. It will make us say, I love you, not because you're lovable, but not because you're just like me, but because of Jesus, which we might add is the way Jesus loved us. He didn't love us because we were lovable. He didn't love us because we could offer something he lacked. He didn't love us because we could benefit him. No, he loved us because he loved us, and he is, his love is a self-giving love that tells us, go and do likewise. We might say, but I just want to be around people just like me. Building deep relationships with people who aren't like me is uncomfortable and challenging and takes me out of my comfort zone. To which I say, and then? Who, so what? This is about Jesus and the kingdom. It's about saying something unique to the world to be a colony of heaven which is full of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Wouldn't it be a powerful testimony if the if people looked at First Baptist Cordial and didn't say, oh, look, they're all in the same building, but they're divided into different segments just like we are. But rather, look at FBC. Why are, they, why are there people who have very little in common loving each other? Like actually loving each other, not just talking about it, but living it. Why? And we can answer, because Jesus. If they ask, what is it that keeps you together when you disagree? And we can answer, Jesus. And they could ask, why do you do what you do? And we could say, Jesus. And when, when they ask, why are you willing to be inconvenienced and uncomfortable for one another? Why do you put preference aside? We will say, Jesus. I mean, just, you know, I was thinking about this. And I, I, I didn't know if I should include this or not, but um, I'm going to do it anyway. And so if you don't like it, just pretend I never said it. I mean, you, think about you and me together. We have almost nothing in common. Do you know that? <laughs> You're like, yes, I am well aware, Vaughn. We likely don't listen to the same music, right? Y'all probably listen to country. Right? We have the same hobbies. 
right? People asked me last week when I said I wouldn't go fishing with somebody in that illustration. They're like, you really don't fish? Like, that's weird, right? You live here, you don't fish? Well, you psychopath? I'm from Denver, Colorado. You're from South Georgia. You wear respectable shoes. I wear yellow Chuck Taylors. I think Nick Cage is the greatest actor of all time. You have bad taste in actors, right? And on and on. <laughs> On and on we can go, I'm Palestinian, for goodness sake. You know, I found a letter. First Baptist Church of Cordial in the late 60s wrote a letter. They voted on this. They wrote a letter to Southern Seminary. The trustees calling on the president of the seminary to be fired because he asked Martin Luther King to preach in chapel. Imagine those dudes were alive now. In the 60s, you had them write a racist letter First Baptist Church of Cordial. Now what do they have? A brownish guy is the pastor, right? Like we wouldn't know. Who would have guessed this? You know what I'm saying? Oh, I could go on and on about all these goofy differences. And yet God brought us together, didn't he? You weren't looking for someone like me. I wasn't looking for someone like you. <laughs> I wasn't looking for an established church in the deep south. But God brought us together and we love each other. Because we both love Jesus, and that's enough, and it's a glorious thing. Who cares about our differences if we're both infatuated with this glorious Christ? This is one of the, you know, this is one of the, the primary ways the early church grew at the rate it did. Because people saw the church living distinct lives and giving ultimate allegiance to King Jesus in the face of a world full of other claimants for their allegiance and the way they loved each other. They said, this is otherworldly. Church father Tertullian, he writes about this. He wrote in the second century saying, the practice of such a special love brands us in the eyes of some. And the Romans look at Christians, he said, and they say, see how they love one another, for we hate one another. And how ready they are to die for each other, for we would sooner kill each other. And when we come to the Lord's Supper, this is precisely what we celebrate. We celebrate everything we talked about today. We celebrate that Jesus healed us, but his healing wasn't primarily physical, but in our hearts. We celebrate that our truest need, what we need more than anything, is to be reconciled to God, to be forgiven our sins, to be upended and remade, to be enabled to kill sin, to find true and lasting satisfaction, which can only be found in Christ. The Lord's Supper reminds us of what it cost for him to get to us and for us to have him. It reminds us what it took to make a new community where enemies become friends because they all see that they were enemies of God who were reconciled to him, but at high cost. It's a tangible reminder of the lengths God was willing to go to get to us, and that tangible reminder is far more than a mere symbol, but should stir our hearts and launch us into a life lived for the kingdom. The creator, God, came and died the cruelest death in history. And he did that so that you can know the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so that you can see knowing them is the greatest gift that could possibly be given and thus live every day in light of that fact. And we remember that when we take the Lord's Supper, we don't do it in isolation, do we? We do it with brothers and sisters in Christ whom we've bound ourselves to. And so when we take 
of the bread and the cup in the presence of one another, we are once again proclaiming our attachment to them so that we can look around and say, these are the people I'm in this thing with. And these are the people I could count on and they could count on me. And why? Because of Jesus. And he's reason enough.